Hello and welcome to Mixed DNA, the podcast with two mixed race hosts who each week choose a topic, do some research on said topic, throw in some of their own thoughts, experiences, and commentary, and discuss. I'm Melissa. And I'm Vanessa. And I'm super excited about today's episode in which we will be talking about global cuisine or international cuisine, whatever you choose to call it. We're going to talk about sushi, roti, pasta, pastry, wine, dessert, and a whole lot of yummy. I'm already hungry. Melissa and I are both big fans of food. We love to eat delicious food. I mean, who doesn't? We'll share some of our likes and dislikes today. And we'll also touch on stereotypes in the culinary world when it comes to spices and trends and so-called ethnic cuisine. And we'll take a look at past trends and ones that you can expect to see this year. As usual, trying to find a favorite kind of food is really hard for me. Finding a favorite anything, really. But I'm going to dive right in and say that my favorite three cuisines are Thai, Middle Eastern, and Latin. Can Latin be one? Like South American cuisine, everything that is South American? I don't see why not. Um, For me, it's really hard to pick three, but I'm going to have to say Thai is my most favorite, followed by Italian and Mexican. All three are so delicious in their own respects, and all three can be fancy or even very everyday, which is what I really like about all of them. The first thing I wanted to touch on in this episode is something we've all heard and maybe even experienced, and it's a common phrase you hear when eating or maybe deciding on what to eat, and that is white people like bland food, or that white people have no spice in their food. Something along those lines, as if white people seem to only know about the spices of salt and pepper. Apparently, due to the online research we did, this is something people actually research. I I don't know why I'm surprised by this, but it seems people do actual paid research on any and everything, and people actually fund these sorts of things. So, There were 101 ways we could um, break this down for this episode, so to make it easier. We're going to speak in terms of European cooking and Indian cooking, as in Southeast Asian cooking, from a historical standpoint. So when you think of Indian cuisine, you think of deep flavors, aromas filling the kitchen or restaurant, and spice. All three of those come from actual spices, cinnamon, cardamom, coriander, anise, cumin, and bay leaves, just to name a few. The spices and seasonings are layered. Some are ones that you wouldn't even use singularly, but together they create something special. And when you look at European cuisine, you think more of complementary flavors, potatoes and leeks or scallops with white wine. Researchers have broken this down into flavor molecules. Indian cuisine uses molecules that don't overlap and Western cuisine uses those on a more molecular level that share the same molecules. Indian cuisine is very flavorful and has a lot at once. Sometimes it's overwhelming. It's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely good. And really, for the most part, anything European to me is just delicious, but I could be biased. Once upon a time, uh, pre-1600s, anthropologists say European cooking was similar to Indian cuisine and the use of their spices. Wealthy people who could afford a variety of spices would be generous with their seasonings. Back then, it was a lot. Uh, a lot of saffron, cinnamon, cloves, and ginger. How cuisine was made changed uh, due to economics, politics, and religion, as most things do. In the Middle Ages, spices were really expensive and only the wealthy could afford them. But Europeans began to colonize parts of India and the Americas. 
This changed and what used to be expensive was becoming more accessible to the masses. The elite, even today, don't want to be like common folk. So the way in which their food was prepared was altered and they started trending towards things tasting like themselves. And if anything was to be added, it was only to enhance the already existing flavors. This was deemed a new way of cooking. In case that doesn't make sense, one article we did find on NPR.org breaks it down like this in terms of fashion. Once upon a time, frills were fashionable, more jewelry, more lace, etc. But then someone just wore the little black dress with a string of pearls, and that was better. That's a simple way of putting it. There was also a shift in sauces back then. Today, in Asian and Indian cuisine, you see and taste a lot of sauce. And what is a sauce? It's basically a puree or a gravy with a ton of flavor and spice. In India, where the Hindu religion is very predominant, they don't eat meat versus in Europe, where meat was was considered and still is the strongest component of the meal. They enhance the existing flavor of the meat with meat-based gravies to help intensify its flavor. With all that in mind, we can begin to see why cuisines vary the way they still do in the culinary world. And to that, I say thank goodness, because there is so much deliciousness out there to try. But I still have one question. What exactly is white people food? Good question. But there's no right or wrong or easy answer. Also, which whites are they referring to? In non-white circles, that is the groups of people where white people are the minority, there's this perception that eating healthy is eating like a white person or that white people food is more expensive. The latter having a lot to do with so-called trendy food, which in reality usually is ethnic food. It's kind of a catch-22 situation that we'll touch on later in this episode. So back to white people food. Does eating quote unquote white mean that you're eating healthier? Because we all know from personal experience, junk food is the cheapest thing at the supermarket compared to many fruits and vegetables or anything in the organic section for that matter. According to dietitians, white people's foods are perceived as salads, fruits, yogurts, cottage cheese, and lean meats. These are all low fat, heart healthy foods as per standard North American health and diet guidelines. I love all these foods, though. But anyway. I can see where the statement eating like a white person can come from. There's a huge disparity in the cost of food, and I'm not talking pandemic shortages or Putin's Russia causing international crisis. I'm speaking generally. Just look at milk as an example. Dairy milk, milk from a cow, is the cheapest milk available compared to healthier options like oat or soy or almond. And thinking back throughout history, and even today in many respects, white people, white upper middle class and higher, are at a socio-advantage in many aspects. This can be brought into the world of a grocery store as well. In lower income areas in North America, the selection tends not to be as vast or the quality not up to par. It's even as simple as, for example, Vanessa and I live comfortably in upper middle class areas where we have a plethora of supermarkets to shop from. If we're at a Food Basics or a Nose Frills, those are large chain grocery stores in the Toronto area, for those not familiar, you'll have apples for sale, maybe two or three varieties, the most common ones like Red Delicious, Granny Smith, and Macintosh, for example. But if you hit higher end grocery stores, and these are also chains, like large chains, like a Fortino's or a Loblaws or like a Whole Foods, you'll see like 10 plus types of apples, like more out of the box apples, like Pink Lady or Honeycrisp or Holstein. 
in certain lower income areas, even in and around Toronto, these higher end grocery stores aren't even available without having to commute further away from your home. In a larger perspective, for poor non-first world nations, the selection isn't fast. They can't afford to bring in all the options or so-called luxury items we see in our stores. We have 30 kinds of cookies. In a less than fortunate country, maybe they only have two options. Spoilage was also taken into account when back in the day, the water supply was polluted. So to avoid contamination from waterborne pathogens and bacteria in cooking, excessive oil was used in place. And now in present day, while not necessary anymore, it's just because a genetic habit to continue the cuisine in this fashion. Apparently, garlic, onion, allspice, and oregano are all known to be the best all-around bacteria killers, followed by thyme, cinnamon, tarragon, and cumin, which can kill up to 80% of bacteria. Spicy food, whether you like or dislike them, cause certain reactions when eating them. And some people find this part of the experience, but some just can't tolerate it. They're sweating, which people can sometimes call an allergy, but it's more of a food sensitivity, which is what many people have towards spicy food, a sensitivity. A runny nose, sweating, diarrhea, ugh, gas for eating anything or something specific. These are generally food sensitivities, whereas an allergic reaction would bring on hives, itchy skin, or a mouth, or a closing of the throat. There's no such thing as a spice-loving gene, as some people will believe since they've been raised in a home where spicy cuisine is the norm. An affinity for spicy food is learned as a result of exposure to a particular pepper or spice. It's science, not genetics. The more you ingest capsaicin, the compound that makes peppers and spices hot and makes your mouth have a burning sensation, while you eat spicy food, your mouth doesn't get any less sensitive than the next person. You just relate the sensation in your mouth to feeling pleasure instead of pain. I am somebody who really likes spicy food. Sometimes I want... Sometimes I want to eat something really spicy, but when it starts to hurt, it's no longer enjoyable. All I need now when I eat spicy food is to take an acid pill and have some tongues nearby and I'm ready to go. If you're like me, you're sensitive to spicy food. I've been getting better as I get older. My tolerance has greatly improved, something I'm getting used to, especially in foods I really love. I no longer need to eat the mildest Thai curry I can find. I can shake it up a bit and hit a heat level one, or maybe even a two, (laughs) (laughs) but no more than that, as the experience just becomes wretched instead of enjoyable. So if you are like me, then you'll want to indulge in some food from Denmark, which apparently has the least spiciest food in the world. Denmark, in recent years, has been evolving into a culinary hotspot, with their cuisine constantly evolving. In fact, the first chili pepper specialty shop opened in Copenhagen in 2007, so 15 years ago, spice and peppers was still a relatively new concept. Traditional Danish food tends to be very meat and fish forward, lots of pork and herring specifically, with a lot of potatoes. They use a lot of organic and local produce in their cuisine, and I like to say that they are constantly evolving the cuisine into what the culinary world calls today new Nordic cuisine. A lot of the very traditional fare is seasoned using salt and pepper, making the ingredients take center stage. Copenhagen, in fact, even has several Michelin star restaurants such as Noma, Cado, and Geranium. As of 2019, Danish restaurants held a total of 35 Michelin stars, more than any other Nordic country. So that says something to me about wanting to give their food a try. 
Their national dish is, and no, I'm not going to say it in Danish because I don't know how. It is translated to crispy pork with parsley sauce. It's a rustic dish served with boiled potatoes and pickled beetroot. Crispy pork does sound delicious, but I'm not sure about the parsley sauce. I just really like spicy food and add some sort of hot spice to what I'm already eating, like sriracha, banana preppers, or chili flakes. Hmm. Also delicious. Eater.com compiled the list of the hottest cuisines that we want to share. They're in no particular order, and it's a lengthy list, so we will highlight a few, as well as post some recipes on our social accounts this week. Let's start with Chinese, specifically Sichuan dishes. When you see the word Sichuan, it's pretty safe to assume that the food will be spicy. Sichuan dishes often use a combo of fresh green, Sichuan peppercorns, and dried red chili oil. Chinese cuisine from the Hunan region is considered to be even hotter, but harder to find outside of China, whereas Sichuan food is easily accessible in most metropolitan areas. I have eaten my fair share of Chinese food, which I do love, especially with spiciness. I do find Thai or Vietnamese to be spicier, but Chinese can definitely burn the tongue depending on where you order from. As I frequently indulge in Chinese cuisine, I notice they clear dishes that have the word Sichuan in the name. I've read into issues where my mouth is literally inflamed or feels inflamed due to the abundance of hot chili. Popular Szechuan dishes include shredded beef with hot green peppers, mapo tofu, and chongqing chicken. Next up on the hottest cuisine list is Ethiopian cuisine. I have unfortunately not tried Ethiopian cuisine. I know we've got quite a fair bit of selection in and around in Toronto, so I should really get on that and give it a try, as I really do hear good things. Ethiopian cuisine revolves around a powdered spice mixture called berber, containing powdered red chili plus ginger, garlic, cloves, and nutmeg, plus other spices. Berber is generally incorporated into stews, which are called wats, the hottest being doro wat, which features chicken and whole boiled eggs. Apparently, though, Ethiopian food in North America tends to not be as spicy as if you were to actually eat it in Ethiopia, even if the restaurant is lucky enough to have an Ethiopian cook or chef. I have eaten Berber beef a couple of times at the Food and Wine Festival in Disney World, but it definitely wasn't spicy. Uh, flavorful, yes, but not spicy. Probably a dumbed down version for the masses. I have also not tried uh, any Ethiopian food, but I have heard it's quite good as well. Uh, one day we really need to make a trek to an Ethiopian restaurant and see what it's about. Next up, the article highlights Ghanaian, Liberian, and Nigerian cuisines. I have also not tried any of these, but I do see a lot of African creators on TikTok, for example, cooking traditional foods, and it looks delicious. Most West African dishes have a fiery component, sometimes directly in stews, soups, but also in their condiments. In Ghana, they use shaito, a hot paste based on ground pepper, anise pepper, and palm oil. The anise pepper is a cousin of the Szechuan peppercorn. If you're ever in a West African restaurant and need more heat, ask for Pima, and you'll usually be brought out a small amount of hot as hell sauce. What's your experience with a West African cuisine? My experience is unfortunately non-existent. Like I just mentioned, my experience of African cuisine is directly from the Epcot Food and Wine Festival and usually has a focus on South African cuisine or Kenya. We should try to find a place in Toronto where we hopefully don't burn our faces off. I'll do some research and get back to you. We've already mentioned Indian cuisine, but 
didn't mention that their signature pepper is the green finger chili. Masalas, which are spice mixtures, are also used to adjust spice levels. Noteworthy dishes to include are, of course, curries, which vary in spice, so ask your server before ordering, vindaloo, and chicken chetanad. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not a fan of Indian cuisine. The mix of the spices, the aroma of them doesn't sit well with me. Although there are dishes that I do like, such as spinach paneer, and I do love a good samosa. I also love a good samosa, but unfortunately, my stomach does not like them anymore, which is very sad. Uh, they're, they're just very delicious, but I cannot have them. I'll just eat them with my nose, smell it. Next up, let's take a look at Japanese cuisine. Shishito peppers are found on many Japanese men. Is it shishito? Yes. Okay. Shishito peppers are found on many Japanese menus. And while shishito pepper isn't super hot by any means when paired with Chinese imported red chili oil, the combination is a very hot sensation. Many forms of ramen have very high heat content. So when ordering, be wary if you're trying to eat more mildly. Powdered condiments, sashimi is also very spicy hot as it contains dried cayenne, taragashi, and sensho. It wasn't on the list of cuisine in the Japanese section when we went though, but wasabi came to mind and so did a little digging. And wasabi is definitely a spice, but because it does not contain capsian, like peppers, caps, ugh, fucking capsian. <laughs> It's okay. I was like, I don't remember how to say it. <laughs> Capsian. Okay. It wasn't on the list of cuisines in the Japanese section when we went, though. But wasabi came to mind, and so did a little digging. And wasabi is definitely a spice. But because it doesn't contain any capsian, like peppers do, it's not considered spicy in the same context. It's hot like hot mustard or horseradish. These tend to give you a sensation not so much in your mouth when you're eating, but more through your nasal passage. And I know what that feels like because I do not like wasabi. But I do love sushi. Uh, not all of it. But um, yeah, when you have it with wasabi, you clear your soul. <laughs> like your brain is gone. Just as I can't eat spice, I can't eat wasabi either. And I love sushi. I don't put any wasabi into my soy sauce like people usually tend to do when eating sushi and sashimi. Uh, next up, we're looking at Japan's neighbor, Korea. Since Korean winters are long and the locals prefer their food both physically hot as well as spicy hot, dishes like jjigae or chigei are brought to tables boiling hot and kept that way with sterno burners. The spiciness comes from kimchi or red chili paste. Kimchi is a fermented table condiment made with Napa cabbage or other vegetables plus crushed red chilies. Koreans also indulge in gochugangaji, which is pickled chilies. They use... They use these a lot in their cooking. Popular dishes include chili-soaked tripe barbecue and bibimbap. I really love a good bibimbap. Of course, no spice for me, though. There are a few other Korean dishes I really like, and I'll get to those a bit later. I've never tried bibimbap, but I worked with a lady who was obsessed with it. It does look good, though. But anyway, I have unfortunately not has... Uh, I unfortunately have not had as many experiences with Korean food as I would like because they all look so delicious. Uh, we definitely need to write it down on our resta a restaurant list. Um, so next up on the spicy list is Peruvian cuisine. 
The primary Peruvian pepper is called ají. The pepper can be red or yellow, and it's usually made into a sauce, which you can find bottled in South American grocery stores. Popular dishes include the aphrodisical leche de tigre, or the national dish of the ají de gallina, which is a hen stewed in spicy sauce of cheese, milk, walnuts, and ají. Mm, so delicious. The first time I tried ají pepper, I cannot believe how insanely hot it was. I thought I could take it because I loved spice and I thought it was super cool. So I was like, you know, I'll eat it. My friend said, be very careful. It's very hot. And I was like, no, no, I can do it. I forget what I was eating with, but I dipped it, possibly a shrimp. And the thing is about it, it's not at first hot. It's just kind of like little tingly. So that's what tricks you. And then it slowly, slowly gets more intense. And it got so intense for me that my entire mouth went numb and I had tears rolling down my cheeks. But <laughs> I still love it. I still love it. Uh, honestly, all the food there I had was delicious. Melissa and I went to a Peruvian restaurant not too long ago because I wanted her to taste uh, how good the food is. It brought back such nice memories. And they also had a heat and it was just right. And that was actually my first time eating Peruvian food. And it was definitely a very good experience. Hopefully you can go back soon. Um, having grown up in a very West Indian Caribbean forward household, spicy food was the norm. However, from a young age, I just couldn't do it. My mother would have to take a portion of the stew or the curry she was making and set it aside before adding chilies or peppers so that I wouldn't starve. I love Caribbean food, especially my mother's and a couple of my aunt's cooking. Because the Caribbean is so diverse in its people, it's home to a landscape of cultures and culinary influences. In general, the foods are often spicy and feature ground provisions, breads, fish, and fresh fruit and vegetables. The most popular meats are pork, poultry, beef, and goat. There are a ton of very common seasonings you'll find throughout many of the islands, including curry, scotch bonnet, mojo, jerk, and colombo, as well as coconut milk. As with many things in the Caribbean, life is slow moving, and that carries over to the cuisine, where stews, soups, and sauces cook slowly, allowing for the spices and seasonings to make dishes truly flavorful. Some of my favorite West Indian Caribbean dishes and most are trini include crab and callaloo, saltfish and dumplings, and curry goat with roti. I'm also a big fan of oxtail on rice and peas with a side of fried plantain. Your mom's cooking is amazing. I agree and I can concur. Um, I do not like oxtail or goat. No, thank you. But saltfish and ackee is, I guess, more Jamaican. Um, it's very delicious and spicy. I also do love the jerk chicken and rice and peas because like, how can you not? And coleslaw, mm, plantain, who doesn't like plantain? If you don't, you're missing out. And if you don't know what it is, go get it. Uh, plantain is also found in a lot of South American dishes. Some of my favorite dishes from cuisines I chose earlier in the episode. Um, I'm going to start with Thai. So I love the majority of Thai food, to be honest. I love the traditional Pad Thai. I love anything with peanuts, which they use a lot in their dishes. And this one is just delicious. The sprinkling of lime gives it such a nice touch. Uh, although I do find it hard to find a place that does it just right. They seem to leave stuff out or it's bland for the masses, which is very upsetting. But when you do find it, it's amazing. If you are at an ethnic restaurant, I think you should be as ethnic as possible and be true to the food you're making. I didn't mention Vietnamese in my three, 
but I do love vermicelli, which is Vietnamese. I love how it's all put together, especially when it's topped with spring rolls. Spring rolls are the best. And I would say are one of my favorites from Asian cuisine. So many different things you can put in there and they're also delicious. Um, I keep saying delicious, but I mean, talking about food is just delicious. <laughs> I'm not really a fan of Asian desserts though, I would say. Mm. I haven't really seen many desserts on Asian menus, to be honest. They probably have some. Maybe I didn't have a menu when I went, but I do love the mango pudding that they have and ice cream, of course. Who doesn't? And bubble tea. I don't know if that can be classified as a dessert, but it could be a dessert. I do love me some bubble tea. So for some of my favorite dishes, and yes, I love Thai cuisine too. And yes, with minimal spice, I love pineapple fried rice and I love masamun curry, which is one of their milder curries. And sometimes it's even a bit sweet. The sweetness and savory foods is a big thing for me, which is also why I love pineapple fried rice. I also love the use of peanuts and coriander in Thai cuisine. And jumping over to Mexican cuisine, I love tacos. You can do so much when it comes to a taco. My favorites would probably be like a carne asada and any sort of fish or shrimp taco. I'm also really big on condiments, which are a huge part of tacos. So guacamole, sour cream, any kind of crema, lime, avocado. Mexican cuisine uses a lot of cilantro too. So that's a plus for me and cheese. Anything with cheese and I am good to go. I also really love Mexican street corn. It's delicious. The crema and the chili powder and the cojito cheese. Delicious. I know we say delicious a lot, but yes, it, that's what it is. It's delicious. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> yes. I also mentioned Italian is one of my favorite cuisines at the start of this episode. And I love pasta, but good homemade pasta made with love. The kind that doesn't make you feel fat or full or sleepy while you're eating it. I prefer a good like pesto or wine or white sauce over any type of red sauce, but I'll indulge in anything. I love truffles in my pasta. And I'm also a big fan of like stuffed pastas instead of like longer noodles. So I'll go for like a ravioli or a manicotti or a cannelloni any day. Yeah, babe. and the... continue. <laughs> Sorry, oh, this is this is like uh, <laughs> I was gonna say this is like food pornography. Like you're reading it, like mm, tell me more, <laughs> tell me more about that cheese. Okay, and the cheese, <laughs> Parmesan ricotta, also yes, delicious, scrumptious. Um. One of my favorite desserts is the zeppoli, which is an Italian pastry, kind of like a donut, but so much like lighter, stuffed with like yumminess, strawberries and cream, custard, hazelnut. Um, outside of my top three favorite cuisines, I also love pierogies from Poland, steamed barbecue pork buns from China, butterfish sashimi from Japan, stir fried udon noodles from Japan, Yorkshire pudding from the UK, Peking duck with scallion pancakes from China, poutine from Canada from Vietnam, poke bowls from Hawaii, souvlaki with a ton of tzatziki from Greece, pastel de nata from Portugal, French onion soup from France, and for beverages, I never say no to Taiwanese bubble tea or some pina colada. And now I'm so hungry. Me too. That was quite the list and I will eat all of them with you. It's interesting that the biggest food trends are generally ethnic foods, foods people in other countries have been eating for years and years. The foods that a lot of ethnic kids would get laughed at for eating at lunchtime. The foods people would cringe at for having to take to school because it would make the lunchroom smell. 
Now these are the trendy foods, the ones all the yuppies and millennials are yearning to eat and hashtag with the Insta food. Now on menus you'll you'll uh, now on menus you'll see kimchi burgers or duck and hoisin tacos or butter chicken poutine. The diversity in fusion food is through the roof, and new combinations are hitting the market and restaurant scene each and every day. When bone broth became all the rage in 2015, you would have thought health and wellness experts had invented it themselves. However, this wonder came from Chinese culture. Same can be said for most wonder foods that seem to come in and out like fashion: avocados, pomegranates, acai berries, kale, quinoa, green tea, almond milk. The list is endless. The North American market is generally the last to jump on these food bandwagons, and then we seem to pass them off as they are new and innovative, giving little or no credit to the people, the locals or indigenous people of a culture who have known about these foods' positive effect on humans for ages. It's only immigrant food until it isn't, and then it's cool and trendy, and celebrity chefs are whipping it up on the Food Network or in their fancy Michelin star restaurants and charging twenty-five dollars for a bowl of chicken pad thai that I can find at a street market in Bangkok for five dollars. Sad but true. An article on Thrillist points to the whole reason why it's a problem when we call ethnic cuisine trendy. Calling any food the next big thing, especially a culture's food, makes it dismissive. The history of the food is lost, and by making it a trend, it'll get lost. Trends come and go. Cuisine is always here to stay. Plus, when a culture's food takes off because it's all of a sudden trendy, the little mom and pop shops that have been doing their best to keep their restaurants afloat aren't the ones winning. It's the places that are overcharging for what was once a simple dish. It's a big hit for smaller restaurants to lose business because people would rather. Try Jamie Oliver's take on a Tuscan lasagna than the lasagna at the small Italian restaurant on the corner that needs a new paint job, and the menus are all like dog-eared. The original people that are making the food aren't getting the credit they deserve. In a way, I see this as a form of cultural appropriation. I will give praise to cooking competitions and the Food Network through for making global cuisine more mainstream and keeping it real, giving people and cultures prime space to highlight what they know and love with the masses. I can see why you would say, but I can see why you could see it as cultural appropriation. But cuisine can be cooked by anyone. They aren't really necessarily stealing culture, but they are putting the twist, like Jamie Oliver. But I do know what you mean as claiming it as their own. But that's what I think. I I know there's some instances where that happens, and they totally disregard the culture that the food came from. But I think when it comes to food. You know that can always be the case, but as long as it comes from a good place, I know I'm heal heal the world, make it a better place kind of thing. But I think you can cook the food and credit the people who made it. But anyway, whether it's cultural appropriation or the stealing of ideas or the so-called food trends that aren't going to stop. In fact,、uh, we came across an article from Better Homes and Gardens letting us know, and now you know. The food trends to be on the lookout for this year, which include the resurgence of '80s cocktail favorites like the Midori Sour and the Long Island Iced Tea, as well as new meat substitutes like jackfruit, which now come in nugget form. <laughs> They do. That's weird.、Um, we'll also see more pea protein forward dishes and more seaweed and plant-based seafood options. Fusion cuisines that are apparently going to flood the food markets include. Northern Mexico's Baja cuisine with Chinese American flavors, Japanese Italian fusion, 
like crispy rice cakes topped with Italian sausage and provolone and British pub fare alongside with Indian favorites like alu chana and naan. I love naan. So be on the lookout in your hometown if you're wanting your Instagram story to be trendy. Food is meant to be shared with those you love and shared with others showing something you love. Food can bring people together. Damn, Japanese Italian fusion. I am sold on that crispy Me rice too. with Italian sausage. <laughs> Me too. And provolone? Yes, please. Uh, the last thing we're going to touch on before we wrap up this episode is the ethnic aisle in your local supermarket. Why? Why is there an ethnic aisle in this day and age? The things found on those aisles can literally be placed in other aisles of the store and still make perfect sense. Seems a bit antiquated, right? Placing foods in the ethnic aisle kind of makes people think they are limited in what they can make with them. There's no reason you couldn't top your pasta with an Indian forward sauce. But when going to get pasta sauce, the butter chicken sauce or the tamarind sauce isn't there. It's all the way in the ethnic food section. However, if a company like Heinz or Hunt's makes butter sauce chicken, you can be confident that it's not going to be placed in the ethnic food aisle. I'll make our own President's Choice brand an example. And... I'm not hating on this brand. I love them. And I think that pretty much everything they make is like gold. But however, their products are scattered all over the store, including a section they have in or near the condiment aisle where they have a crap load of sauces. And by crap load, I mean like literally they have like a whole aisle of sauces that they make. Um, President's Choice makes almost every sauce under the sun from every ethnicity you can think of. They have a whole line of sauces called Memories of, and you insert the name of a country or region. So we have Memories of Hong Kong, Memories of Bangkok, Memories of Montego Bay, Memories of Kobe. These so-called international President's Choice sauces all sit together far from the ethnic aisle. Their jerk sauce isn't with the other brands of lesser known ones, unless, I mean, they're lesser known unless you're Jamaican or West Indian. Jerk sauces their gochujang sauce isn't with the other gochujang sauces, and that's not really fair. I'm sure part of it is like business, as in President's Choice has the capital to be able to push their product for better shelf placement or their sauces, whereas the smaller brands don't have room to play. They're probably just fortunate enough that their product is even available in a large grocery store. It's even like, even like with pop, or as in they call it soda in the States, Ethnic pop isn't where the other pop is. Like, that's weird. It's pop. Put it all together. <laughs> a specific section for ethnic pop? That sounds yes. like a music yeah. section. I don't know. I agree with you. I don't understand why it all can't be part of all the other things that make sense being together. Like condiments, like you said. Jerk chicken sauce can be near the barbecue sauce. Like, it's okay. You know, it's seasoning for meat. They have the same kind of thing at Walmart. I don't think in shoppers, but like that ethnic hair product placement, you know, it's only like in the corner at the end of the hair aisle. It's like shoved in the corner, just these random products that can be distributed through all the other, all the other products in the aisle. Always found it weird. It's great that there are so many international grocery stores popping up these days though. They're starting to flood the market, which is a plus for people looking for cheaper products and the same products outside of the larger stores. In Toronto and the surrounding areas, we have many Asian supermarkets, Afri African supermarkets, South American ones, and European ones. There's a really good one near us 
well, one we're in the middle. So there's one in Hamilton, which is 20 minutes away. And then there's one in Oakville, which is 20 minutes away. It's called Starsky's and it's one of the best European supermarkets I ever went to. Just throwing it out there. Anyways, they make fun. Oops. They make for fun shopping experiences because you can find things you want or find things you may not be able to find in the bigger chains. Plus, immigrants and expats can find products and brand names of food items they grew up with or are more familiar with. How about a quick game of this or that? It's been a while before okay. we end off this yes. episode. Alrighty, so ordering pizza or ordering Chinese? Ordering Chinese. I don't know. It's a big toss-up for me. I like both. Chinese. But I guess... Chinese is more encompassing and I think it's better bang for your buck because like it can last like two or three days. Yeah, exactly. Pancakes or waffles? Hmm. That is also hard because the toppings that you would put on either one of these can be put on either one of these. It is. So it's more the texture. Pancakes are like softer. Waffles are more crispy. But could you put a chunk of ice cream between two pancakes? Of course. Who says you can't? True story. Hmm. I would say waffles. I'm going to go with pancakes. Okay. Baked potato or mashed potato? These are hard. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, depends on what you're eating it with. Uh, but I'll say baked potato because of the skin. For me, it's always baked. I always prefer baked potato over mashed potato. But it, don't get me wrong. I also love mashed potatoes. True. Burger or hot dog? Hot dog. Ugh, I'm also torn. But I, I mean, <laughs> you can do so much with burgers, but you can. Hot dogs are really coming, coming into their own these days. I find like people are doing a lot with hot dogs lately. Yeah, they're good. But I think lately I'm like on this big hot dog kick. I know. Same. I think that's why I chose hot dog. <laughs> uh, white sauce or red sauce? Well, I was obsessed with red sauce, but now my stomach does not. Oh, sorry. Did I say red sauce? I mean, white sauce. Uh, Yeah, my stomach doesn't like it anymore. It was my favorite. So I'll go with red sauce because I get less of a stomach ache. But if I didn't get a stomach ache, then it would be white sauce. For me, it's white sauce. I I don't mind red sauce, like a good bolognese sauce, whatever. But I really do prefer white sauce. Mm. Gelato or ice cream? gelato but yeah i don't know i'm gonna say ice cream okay gelato. i mean there's so many different kinds of ice cream but yeah i'm just gonna say ice cream. so many different kinds of gelato but gelato only comes from one place yeah it's good um ramen or pho <sighs> um i'll say ramen this is really hard. For me, it's faux. I got to go faux. Okay. Kale or spinach? These are equally gross and equally good, depending on what it's in. Um, I, Spinach. Oh, for me, it's spinach. I can't stand kale. Like, I'll eat it, but like. Yeah, it's odd. It's like a harder. I don't know. And spinach kale is like better. one of those superfoods that kind of like came out of like one day there was no kale and then every day. One day there was kale Everything everywhere. Was kale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kale chips, even. Um, eat in or eat out. 
am I making the eat in or am I ordering to eat in? Or is eating ordering to eat in your house like eating out? Eating in is eating home cooked food. I don't know who whoever made it. You could have made it. Someone else could have made it. Or eating out is eating out. Okay. Eating in, if it's at your house and your mom is cooking and eating out normally. No, for me, it's eating out. If I could eat at a, if I could afford to eat at a restaurant every day, every like day. with the amount of cool restaurants there are in this city. Yeah, that's city, true. And I didn't have to drive to them. If I could just teleport to one. Okay. Every night, like, how are you getting to these places? If I could just teleport there, because I cannot stand the traffic or the paying for parking, but I would literally just eat out all the time. See Star Trek. See how this episode fits. If you had a teleporter, we could go to all the restaurants and be home before we digest it. And if we also didn't have children. That is also very true. You only eat like four things. That's right. And then sometimes don't even eat any of those four things. It's true. (laughs) (sighs) Well, Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode. It's been a blast, as usual. And now I'm super hungry and craving everything. Remember to give us a five-star rating, a like, or leave a comment on whichever platform you are listening to us right now. We'd really appreciate it. Let us know what your favorite cuisine or dishes via our social media. You can reach us at Mixed DNA Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, eat good food. Bye.